Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvel's Chronos Gaming Classics and delicious recipes. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK, which does in fact stand for Test Kitchen, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And I'm Jonah, and if you want to see my food truck be destroyed, you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K, and we hope you survive this experience. Unlike, Unlike that food truck. Food truck. <laughs> that was amazing. I'm so excited to be here to talk about Test Kitchen, which is this wonderful little surprise that Marvel put out there on their Infinity comic line on the Marvel app. It's written by Paul Eschbach with pencils by EJ Sue and letters by Joe Sabino, also edited by Ellie Powell. And I am so excited to be talking about this uh, fun little series. It's everything that a number of us love. We're like big cooking show people. And this is just a weird little fucking cooking show thing. And put marvelly, I don't know. So first things first, I know that we're all food people. So let's talk food for a second. Superhero food comics, go. Well, okay. So now you're you're opening up the uh, Pandora's lunchbox there. Because are we talking about superheroes made out of food? And that's just the entire world. And that's the AU we're going to be living in or are we talking about comic books about superheroes that involve food one of my favorite things i love candy themed things so like i love i love the idea of like anthropomorphic candy I, maybe it's because i played Candyland too much as a kid i don't know it could be fun to have a bunch of superheroes made out of food and the entire world's made out of food but everything else is just the same that would be kind of funny but more importantly i love cooking chefery baking all the things around the food sciences i find so fascinating interesting uh and truly a remarkable feat in the way that we as humans have evolved to create such a distinct ability to be able to transform objects into something completely different based on how you cut it up, how you cook it, how you season it, how you basically transform an item into something completely different and you can give maybe 20 chefs the exact same ingredients and maybe you'll have a bunch of different dishes that will all invoke different emotions, different experiences, different things based off of their own techniques and what they like and all these different things. And I think food is so beautiful and I'm so happy that Mar Marvel's exploring what food could mean within the Marvelverse. And it's really interesting because I am somebody who loves to cook. I partially cook professionally and cooking is also really one of my big creative outlets. And when you talk about comics, we're talking a lot about creators and creativity and what goes into making a comic. Obviously, you don't talk very much about how comics are written in the pages of a Marvel comic, but there's also not a ton of exploration about creativity in the first place. These are books about superheroes. That makes a lot of sense. You'll have somebody like Dazzler who is an artist but even then we don't always go into a huge like this is her studio process and it's really cooking as an art form and as an activity that is both creative but so divorced from the creativity that gets involved in making a comic is a really interesting outlet for some commentary on creativity on being a creator on being somebody that people will respond to in a way that makes it kind of safe for a writer to talk about it but does 
doesn't start to get too self-referential or become a lot of like, this is actually what comics are about. And so you have this character who has so much pride in what she does and the idea that it's simply the superhero community responding to her mission and creativity and that's the basis of the book and how we jump on this journey is a really cool and smart thing. For no other reason that the comic industry and the comic sort of nature of things is not by definition exclusive to superhero genre and I'm a comic book guy and I love a lot of the stuff that comes along with being like a superhero kind of guy like I love like cosplay like it's actually fun to dress up and I love going to the gym and trying to look as Thor as I can but like I love food I fucking love food and one of our favorite things to talk about are the X-Men baseball issues where the X-Men just get to have a good fucking time being X-Men and I it's gonna sound so stupid but people who know me know I collect baseball caps preferably flat brim preferably with something on the under brim you know there's a look that I like and I like to achieve it and if I saw something about like Marvel fashion wear and like a superhero that really wants to collect sneakers or has a thing for getting really fancy hats I would really connect with that and it sounds so mundane but the idea that foo is connected to this very human part of us this thing that many of us if not all of us experience you know there are people I'm sure who don't have like a oh man I love the taste of food kind of relationship but like whether it's watching it made or watching people talk about it the three of us have watched a lot of food programs in some configuration together. And, you know, we had been talking a lot for months to the point where we kind of all had to be like, we've got to stop mentioning this about the fact that we wanted to see more slice of life stuff, usually kind of in the context of Krakoa. But the idea that we wanted to see more slice of life stuff, we thought that Infinity Comics were a really smart place to do that because obviously it's not going to be a gangbuster seller, but I think it enhances everybody's experience of the Marvel Universe to have stories that plausibly exist within this world but give us something other than superheroics and although this is not specifically an X-Men story or a mutant story this is really kind of exactly the type of thing that I love to see them playing around with on top of the fact that it involves a more mundane part of superhero existence which is you know how they get their food and who's making it and how somebody who does those things is uh, affected by superheroics there's also this brilliant idea to put the recipes that are being talked about in the book itself it just it's a really fun way to engage and expand your understanding of what goes on in the marvel universe without also kind of laying down all these stakes where a it's either got to somehow turn into a superhero book or and or b it has to sell a lot and get people really interested or this is a subject we're never going to touch so let's take a look at what we're talking about with these two stories test kitchen infinity comic number one and two we see the main character Anna Ameyama and she's got this adorable food truck Iron Man crashes into it because he's fighting with Thin Fang Foom and it destroys her livelihood so Tony offers her a job and gives her a chance to become a world famous chef I love this idea of Tony Stark just sort of being like uh yeah okay no you're famous now sure there's this sort of and I hate to say it this way but like I feel like a lot of people give Tony Stark too hard a time for being a piece of shit when I feel like there are a lot of pieces of shit and Tony Stark does do an occasional good thing I'm not saying Tony Stark isn't a bad man. I'm saying he's kind of no more bad than a lot of heroes who get a pass. This is the sort of thing I love about Tony Stark that I think is realistically within his character. I do appreciate that he does treat it very blasé. Yeah, no, you're gonna be famous now. You're gonna come work for me and it's got all these things because he's just so used to not really being told no 
by non-superheroes, if that makes sense from my understanding and perspective of Tony. It seems like everybody around him, not essentially are yes-men, but, you know, it's Tony Stark. If you're actually in real life and you see Tony Stark and he's like, hey, you want a job? I don't think many people would be like, no. I do appreciate that he did take a moment and instead of doing that kind of thing where it's like, we have Avengers insurance, I'll give you the number to call. He was like, well, we're in the middle of a fight, but I can stop for some food. Can I have some food? And then she wowed him and he was like, oh, okay, so you're my new best friend and you're gonna be my personal chef. She said, I didn't agree to anything. And he said, no, but you're gonna come to Stark Tower tomorrow and you're gonna cook for me. This is one time, one of these times where I'm like, okay, Tony, I think this he went about everything in the right way. He's really the character that is most plausible for would have a chef. Again, I kind of point to the idea that I'm not super interested in this becoming like a mainstay of Avengers. Avengers Mansion or Avengers Mountain could presumably have a staff. You know, when the presence of Jarvis is there, it's believable that there are other people. You could absolutely believe that there are cooks. And we might kind of graduate to that point. But once you get away from that, the idea that Tony Stark would hire a personal chef is a totally plausible thing. And I think it's nice because, yeah, sometimes Tony Stark comes off as kind of a dick, but this is a really good opportunity to not have to delve into that. And he can just be a guy that has a lot of money and therefore has a personal chef. And this doesn't have to be the book where we debate the further ramifications of his actions. This is just plausibly how this character could engage with the superhero community through food. And then, you know, he's Tony Stark. So of course, the other people that he's attached to are going to be really interesting. And I love that it is Emma that we start off with as the next person to experience the food. Well, I want to experience the food. And I think it's amazing that a Michelin chef stuck the recipe for his torta in the back of this book. I really want to try it out. It's all done so clearly. There's really beautiful illustrations and paragraph length descriptions of what to do. I feel like they actually did kind of make it possible for someone to remake this recipe. Yes. It's something that makes me really excited and it is really special and amazing that they are doing with this comic is that there are actual recipes for fans to follow at home to see how it's made, to test it out. And I love one of my favorite things that they've did with this was the amount of what feels like great encouragement for anybody of any skill level to cook where it talks about you don't have to use this protein. Use a different one. Use whatever you want. Season it how you want. Make any changes that you want to make for your food. You don't have to follow this exactly. I'm just giving you my recipe. And I really appreciate that for making it so that people don't have to feel confined. Because food should be fun. I think I know that food is a very tricky subject for so many different people. And a lot of people can have a different relationship with food. But I think having a medium like comics and having it put in a way with not only visuals, but encouraging uh, dialogue and blurbs that make it feel like you can make it your own and you can just kind of follow the the outline of this without having to follow it strictly makes it feel even more special and positive that I hope will encourage more people to try cooking their own food and trying to make these recipes. I really did appreciate that. It's also pretty cool because the visual aspect of the medium allows you to illustrate literally how to make the stuff in a way that I think just functionally, this is a very good product. And I also love that it's not the silly cash grab that a lot of property, you know, IP cookbooks are. The last one I looked at and I did not buy, but I just had to know what the absolute fuck was the Overwatch cookbook. <laughs> 
which is nonsense. And like, there is so little food in Overwatch at all that the idea that you could make like a whole cookbook out of it is really silly to me. But in this case, because you also get the opportunity to put the food in the story, it ends up making a ton of sense. And between that and the fact that you have a really good venue for actually illustrating the process of making the food, I just think in every way, this makes so much sense and really is the type of innovation that I love seeing in comics and then from Infinity especially. So there was only one major disappointment for me in this two issues so far, and that's when I was told Mika was appearing, I was expecting something a little more We Are Golden Grace Kelly. And, you know, I got Herbie's adorable cousin. And so Mika stands for Mechanical Interactive Kitchen Assistant, and I desperately need one and love it. How did you guys feel about this little bit of Marvel tech creeping its way into the kitchen? I'm waiting for Mika's invitation to the android robot Poker Night that we saw over in Spider-Bots. Okay. And maybe Mika can cater. And I'm waiting for Mika to be the chef for the machines that are going to take out mutants and humans in this uh, trifecta war between Orcus, mutants, and machines. Oh, like Nimrod just comes blaring in like to the kitchen because he's ready to destroy everything. And he's like, huh. And he just adopts Mika to be his own personal yeah, chef. Yeah, he, he picks him up in his big boy arms and takes him back to the machine kitchen. I don't know what they cook there, but I believe it happens. I think he probably spits in Moira's food, but that's okay. She deserves it. And I just want to give a huge shout out to the incredible art team for making what we're talking about so fun. Not like in a dismissive way, but like comics usually get robots pretty cool. This is a cool robot. Hey, thanks. It's hard to draw food. It just really is. And the food in this looks great. Even the overstuffed refrigerator, there is a like a quality of realism to it that I really appreciate. It's something that a lot of artists will comment on, especially in TV shows, but I think just throughout any medium, any visual medium, food is kind of the thing where you really just throw whatever you can onto whatever the plate is because there's so much to draw and food is difficult to draw and there's only so much time. It's another thing that makes this book very interesting, which is we now get an opportunity to see food loving. I don't think there's any artist who hates drawing food. It's just difficult to do when you're on a deadline and it generally matters so little. It really is the thing that you have to kind of toss out first when you're triaging. But in this case, it's the first thing that you want to focus on because because it's so important to the book. And therefore, yeah, we get this thing that we don't usually see in visual media, which is really beautifully rendered art for the food. And, you know, it's, they really do nail it. Speaking of things they nailed, Emma fucking Frost. She's great. I'm trying to think of the right uh, comparison in terms of judges for the various cooking shows that she would represent. The Gail Simmons, the Padma Lakshmi, the- Oh, Antonio LaFaso. Oh, the Antonio LaFaso, yeah. I do not see Antonia. Padma is definitely high on the list for sure. You know, and I just want to uh, at some point stand next to Tom Colicchio and just like nuzzle him. But um, <laughs> other than that, I I love Emma being in this. And because, you know, there's that whole thing where we all still talk about or, you know, everybody's got their annoying canon that they just can't let go. And for some of us, it's the wedding of Tony and Emma. And, you know, whether you want it or you hate it or you think it's annoying, but it could be possible or whatever. They're 
a combination that when they're on the page gets an extreme reaction. And I feel as though these two are very much sort of well used here. They don't feel unnatural. I don't feel forced to like them together. I just think this was a good utilization. And she even mentions the gala. This was a nice touch. And I think it is plausible that on a level, on this level, they are friends and peers. They are both people who enjoy a degree of sophistication, who have high levels of knowledge about things like food, wine. They have a ton of money. So, you know, they're going to be foodies in that way that they're going to have tasted the best recipes and caviar. They're going to know the best chefs. They have reservations wherever they want. So regardless of whatever happens with a potential romantic relationship, regardless of tension between humans and mutants, these two are financial peers. And I think the sort of thing that comes with having and spending a lot of money, that's uh, a kind of friendship and a kind of common bond that neither of them is going to have with a lot of people and shouldn't because it's not a very relatable thing. It's not something that needs to come up a lot. Perfect example of how to use it of a way in which you can definitely see these two just, you know, hanging out regardless of anything else that happens with their relationship. They're going to be the two people that want to try the most exclusive restaurant that nobody can get reservations to. And when one of them has an amazing chef, they're going to invite the other essentially just to gloat because this is the only other person that would appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. Emma Frost is used to uh, a very elite, extensive list of high-end places that she's very used to probably going in, waltzing, already having a table, doesn't need a reservation. The table is just reserved for her and her party and eating the finest cuisines wherever she happens to be in the world. I think I know we often, this role that we look at Emma right now as the girl boss that she is, this amazing woman, this entrepreneur, uh, <laughs> easy to forget that Emma has had a strong stringent period of time where she's had plenty of money and she also comes from a lot of money so it, it really makes sense of like if Tony Stark not Tony Snark if Tony Stark has a snobbish palette friend it's going to be Emma or, or acquaintance if you will it was a really great cameo for Emma I truly was kind of perfect it was a very interesting moment and I want to phrase it that way where Anna knows who Emma Frost is but doesn't know that she's a telepath you can do that? You could just take the recipe from my head? Like, it's Emma Frost. Do, does, does everybody in the Marvelverse not know that Emma Frost is a telepath? I think it might just be like, I'm a non-magical person. Look how little I know about exactly how telepathy works. Instead of bewilderment, it could have been more like astonishment or amazement. It is just something that maybe a touch of clarity could have been helpful. But that really, like, it's not really the huge... If that's my biggest ding, I'm pretty sure that means this is a great Infinity comic. Honestly, the thing that it gave me most for Emma is a desire to see somebody pay homage to the scene from Dynasty with Dominique Devereaux and Alexis Carrington Colby with the champagne is burned. It's like a very iconic scene and I just kind of need to see a version of that involving Emma Frost and another very rich person or like maybe Cersei. I'm really hoping that this isn't the only two issues of this. We had such a good time talking about this. It's just such an easy light thing to dial into. There's no real continuity. There's no real canon. There's just a good time enjoying characters that we love and uh, I want to thank you guys for coming out and talking about it with me and then this was a ton of fun and like i said this is exactly the type of stuff that i would love to see marvel doing more of in infinity comics i think this is a great way to expand the world and give us some content that understandably isn't for monthly published books but really works in this particular medium absolutely i love marvel expanding and experimenting and trying new different uh new and different things and i'm really hoping we get more of this it was really enjoyable i think anna's a really fun character and like we just said earlier in the episode 
episode, there's a wealth and treasure trove of stories to be told about non-hero citizens throughout the Marvelverse and their perspective and their interacting. They don't have to be buddy buddies and best friends with everybody. Not every superhero needs to have their civilian that they're best friends with. But it is nice that Marvel is trying to experiment it with a little bit uh, with it a little bit more and have some fun and kind of just give what we've been, you know, banging pots and pans with over here on our podcast about wanting some more slice of life stuff. And speaking of more amazing books that we can't get enough of, coming up next, we've got a look at New Mutants 29, followed by a look at Punisher number six. And we hope you guys enjoy. Ding dong, are all right. Then, hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of X for Podcast, where we talk about our favorite comics every week. My name is Nathan. You can find me online at Twitter at Desert AOA. That's like Desert in the Age of Apocalypse, where you can hear me talking about how I love this romance. Hi, that makes me Dame Red Red, aka Raven. How do you do? Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H O W D Y D U D A, and my pronouns are they and them. And that leaves me as Jake. You can find me over on Twitter at Omega Sentinel. That's O H Mega Sentinel, like O Mega Sentinel or Hark Mega Sentinel. And we hope you survive the experience, unlike a whole bunch of Orcus holograms and that one base that Scout took out all by herself. They must suck at their job. But Scout is a baby Wolverine and she's amazing. So I could see her take out a whole base of Orcus. Taking out a whole base of Orcus while looking for a pizza place. The organization that has had Nimrod up and running and killed an entire team of X-Force, including Wolverine, several times over. I get that hey. these guys are skeleton crew, but <laughs> wow. These were, like, these were like the ones left behind. Like, <laughs> no, nobody's that worried about this. Yeah, there's here, blah. Yes, that means we're talking about New Mutants 29. And this issue was written by Danny Lore. Guillermo Sana is our artist. Dan Brown is our colorist. VCs Travis Lanham is our letterer in design. And then you've got overall design, Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So like, I have to say, I love this issue. I love that we're getting fill-in writers, fill-in arcs or writing that is of almost is the same amazing quality as the amazing Italian Vita Ayala. Like Danny Lore, who has any experience with them as a writer who has read any of their stories tell me tell me what tell me what you know about danny Lore. my twitter account is famously pro danny Lore at this point so i'm a big fan of danny Lore's writing i've really appreciated them you can find them at Dogs on twitter if you're very interested in that but danny Lore likes to write about werewolves who are ex-werewolves who are mob enforcers and used to work for deadly mages over at vault comics in the excellent story lunar room there's uh the truly excellent death of dr strange blade issue that came out last year that made me really desperate for a Danny Lord Blade series which I think we're getting actually very soon. So Teen Justice is a book coming out in DC right now. It is part of the Multiversity line so it is a really cool gender flip version of Young Justice Teen Titans. I have to say there is a really cool queer romance between Don Troy and Raven. <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm digging it. I have read some of their actually IDW Star Trek work. I, As far as I know 
this is actually my first exposure to Danny Lore. I don't think I have read any of their other works. Like, I don't recognize this style of storytelling. So it was kind of refreshing. I was like, hmm, okay. Okay, I, I have not encountered this before. And I, I, I like that it didn't take just a straightforward hack and slash. Like, there was actual layers to it, which was really nice. This is my second story by Danny Lore. The first one that I saw was the Marvel Voices Pride about Venom and Taku, who are a couple who had kind of not been on the page for like 20 years and whose whole relationship was happening by subtext and suggestion. And so Danny wrote a really great story showing them as a loving couple who are also a powerful couple who are also dealing with their own issues, really well-rounded, really just like lovely and and beautiful to see these characters get their, get the, the full scope of who they are happening on the page. I ran into them at FlameCon. They had a table there and I just like squeed because that one story was enough to like get me sitting up and paying attention to this person who clearly like is a great comic writer, really knows how to get into the heads and voices of these characters and and clearly has a project around bringing up and bringing out queer characters or like subtextual queer characters in the light. And I think that's amazing. It's also so, like you said, well layered and, and, and lovingly references some really important beats of old X history. I think a lot of people were a little nervous about the idea of a guest writer or somebody taking over for Vida Ayala, but when I I had heard a long time ago it was Danny Laura, and I gotta say, I don't think there's anybody in the comics writing business who I could think of who could fill in for Vida Ayala on an issue of New Mutants Better. <laughs> totally agreed. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, like, the level of introspection between these characters and lore and canon that they included, this felt like, obviously there was stylistic differences, but this felt conceptually and, and on like a, a deep level like the same quality well i just love that the the whole narrative frame is this flip on james's own origin where he came originally to the x-men to attack them because something happened to his sibling and so now he's on the other side of that dynamic in this story right off the bat he's like got the irrational sibling of his friend attacking him because they think something has done uh, they think that you know he's responsible for hurting scout or like getting scout in trouble i just i just love the way that this is just such a, a flip on the head to show us how far yeah that's a really good point i didn't even think about that I'll never forget him, you know, rushing in and just beating the fudge out of Banshee because he's like, ha ha ha, you are the one who killed my brother. Now I've got to go after Xavier. That was his sole motivation the longest time. And then we did get some a little growth of his character in New Mutants that was maybe retracted and waffled and X-Wars because it was the 90s and everybody had to be like, like everything sucked. <laughs> we have to have masculine, no emotion, rage. Yeah, I remember that era well. There's no book that encapsulates that era of comics masculinity to me than X-Force because I think they were very <laughs> over-the-top performative masculinity. I think it, it just goes to show you though that like writers have come a long way and comic books in general have come a long way because there's still room for that kind of brutal hack-and-slash kind of comic book in X-Force but you can also add nuance and flavor and layering to your character by using them in different 
different books or using them with different writers who, you know, just take the time to add a different layer of nuance. And after a while, they become this wonderful conglomeration and, and a fully realized character because you have several fully realized writers touching on them. I mean, one of the great things about having such a such a big world to tell these stories in is that you can kind of you get to see the multi multifaceted nature of some of these characters. It makes them feel more real to see like, you know, Wolverine's most brutal side comes out in this contemporary version of X-Force, but his softer side comes out in Hickman's X-Men run. It does give us the opportunity to move towards the energy that we want from these characters. Yeah, something that uh, really sold me on this book from the very beginning, uh, especially that scene with the attack, is not only how hot they look together, (laughs) like, but also just like the the art throughout this comic is phenomenal. And uh, Guillermo Sana really reminds me, and I couldn't, I was struggling to think of what it was, but it's really like something very close to Leonardo Romero and Tom Riley. And it's something about the inking and the sort of blocky stylistic figures and I really love it. I got used to a very particular style, the watercolorings, you know, and whatnot. So like when I went in, I didn't realize, okay, oh, okay, this is different. This is this is different. And so, you know, I read it once and I was like, okay, that was good. And then I went back a little bit later and read it a second time. I'm like, okay, different artists. That's why this feels so different. Pardon the repetitiveness. The style choice of art really does fit. Okay, okay. So it might take me another like episode or two to get used to it, but I think I'm gonna like it. I don't think Guillermo Sana is sticking around. I think it's just for this issue, but yeah. That's it's too bad. I really, I think this is I mean, like, I like everything about the art in this issue. I think the color palette is really solid. I really appreciate the contrast in their skin. Like, I really appreciate this era where we finally are getting skin tone better for characters. Especially characters of color. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, specifically characters of color, because, you know, how often did we have color characters of color whitewashed out or, you know, all painted, all colored one, like, indeterminable tone. So you couldn't <laughs> actually, like, the, the, it, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> it's, I think, again, like, just, I mean, everything about how James is drawn really draws me in he he looks like a an indigenous man and then his shirt comes off and he looks like an indigenous a dream, a dream. Mayan. a dream that panel where right after Akihiro sliced the shirt and he's just standing there holding some of the remnants and it's like wide open I was like I think I'm gonna like this <laughs> this is a, this is such a gimme panel are you happy now is this what you wanted like that is yes everyone <laughs> looking right out at the audience being like hey this is Danny Lore having fun with us I love it I freaking love yeah, it that's really good between the like hyper muscled but not like not like weirdly muscle bound you know look like everybody's kind of like a lithe body mm-hmm. for an athlete but between that and the design of the costume for James in this issue and the domino mask I just kept thinking to myself man I really want to see this artist on Nightwing oh mm-hmm. yeah yeah that could be a lot of fun on like a noir detective hero book I just I really appreciate this I mean James throughout this book but also just throughout Vita's run broadly like you really are seeing a character who has grown who knows himself a lot better like the journal entries that he was writing that Danny assigned him to write you know so that he could be a better mentor getting into his head some more like I really feel like I have a much better sense of who this character is yeah. than I ever have before and the growth that he has talked about on in those journal entries is demonstrated here on the page the way he deals with I mean the way he deals with any of these students like his his stepping into this role as a teacher has really it's like a natural fit for him it seems and he he's so effortless 
effortless with the way he works with Aki uh, and works with his feelings and doesn't tell him he's wrong and doesn't tell him he's like doing anything bad. You know, he just says he cares about his sister and like understands that he's overprotective. Like he's very compassionate and understanding and patient. And these are all traits that feel like a nat like he got to naturally. Like it wasn't a sudden abrupt shift in the character. This was something that he earned over the course of the many years patient. And I just love seeing that growth in a character and seeing it so celebrated. Really is. I, I love that you pointed out the letters because I feel like Vita has been doing a lot of really rapid catch up on the character of James Proudstar because of the lack of characterization that that character has often had. And it's like these letters and the psychiatric or psychological dialogues that he has with his friends and fellow teammates take the place of like the thought bubbles we used to have that would really get us a glimpse into what the character mm-hmm. is like and what they think about. And I think that's continued into this issue really well with his whole conversation with Akihiro that is like sort of therapy for him, sort of therapy for himself. What if therapy is James's new superpower? Because it seems, honestly, like he's one of the yeah, few therapy who's getting it. it. It's so funny to me that like there's this inclination to automatically assign the telepaths to therapeutic roles. Although, <laughs> but it's like, it's like Paige Guthrie and James Proudstar are the ones who are actually pursuing the education. Mm-hmm. Which I, I love the fact that they actually recognize their need for therapy versus going, no, no, I, I'm just going to clam these emotions up in here and it's going to be just fine. We're just going to, we're just going to pack them down and never address them. And like, you see that all too often, especially with, uh, with men of color, like where you just like, they're just, nope, I'm just going to tough this out. And it's like, no, please, please get therapy. Cause like, we need you to get therapy. We need you to be like more functional because we know you're better. So please. And like, James is really putting in a lot of effort and coming so far from where he was originally holding on to so much anger and so much violence and and so much trauma and just refusing to process it so like it it felt really good to see James being taken seriously when it comes to his own mental health and actually processing the trauma that he's been through and it was great to see it as a, a, a person of color talking to a person of color who's gone through the same traumatic experience of possibly losing a, you know siblings or family and having that you know that over-the-top reaction and i love the fact that james didn't hold that against akihiro he didn't go dude you're just out of control you just need to suck it up you just you know come on we all lose people we've got resurrection protocols we can just get a new one like no he actually took the time like to patiently kind of fend off his attack while talking to him and helping to get some of that rage out so that Akihiro could process why he had such a violent reaction. The X-Line especially has been diving into it, but not even just the X-Line. A lot of Marvel comics recently have been diving a lot into values, therapy, especially for these characters. Vita, they've been putting a lot of therapeutic stuff in their New Mutants. Mm-hmm. Now Daniel is putting a lot of therapeutic stuff in their one issue for New Mutants. So like, it seems like this is a really dawn of an era where people are are trying to go into the psyche see what damage one being a superhero will cause because holy shit that would destroy me i don't know about any of y'all but that would destroy me i i'd go villain arc so fast it feels like this is part of what at least for the mutants it feels like this is part of what the promise of Krakoa is supposed to be about you know we've we finally entered the promised land and can lay down our burdens and hammer our spears into plows and shit like that you know it's it's you know we can turn to peace finally and in doing so become better 
people and be better for future generations. Um, it's something that that they've never been able to do before because they've never had the opportunity to pool their their power collectively. They've never had a place to come together to be with each other in community. Like we saw a lot of the tragedies and and stresses and traumas of the world reflected in comic books, and you know all we saw reflected back was just the trauma and never the healing and seeing as x-men as a whole was written as an allegory for people who were othered and marginalized like it was like great i love it it's trauma and there's some revenge but you didn't get any sort of like okay now we really need to look at why this is so dramatic or why i am having just this continual violent reaction to everything and not being able to actually like process the whys and we're finally moving into it and it's like oh Oh my god, we're getting therapy and it doesn't cost me $150. <laughs> like it's in some ways it's therapeutic not just for the characters in the book but for the reader as well and and I think there's a huge takeaway from that. Like therapy in this economy? Mm. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, I totally agree. I, I agree that comics are a mirror that we hold up to ourselves and they reflect what's going on. And part of me wonders whether or not, because a lot of the like, at least the turn in New Mutants seems to have happened in the like post pan like the pandemic era. And I wonder what the the influence of like things like lockdown and the the forced sort of de-socialization of people for a while, what kind of role that played into wanting to write a book that was about character who've been through something traumatic who've been through years of trauma finally coming to terms with their with their their pain and working with it um because i see i see some like i i, I feel some like some reflection of the quiet scare of the pandemic somewhere in there but i'm, I'm also you know I'm, I'm i'm looking for what pandemic art looks like right now as a personal project so i could just be projecting no i mean i think you're i think you're very very right sudden isolation will definitely um kind of change your brain chemistry as it were it, it will definitely change the way you act and react to things and i think being upheaved and then literally forced into at least semi-isolation so that you lose what little uh, uh social community that was built and now you have to find different ways to actually socialize and reintegrate and and i think a lot of people it caused them to have to need to self-reflect on okay well <laughs> this is is not functional what what we're doing what i'm doing what the society is doing is not truly functional and i need a different way to process so i think a lot of people ended up needing therapy uh for for you know just just being isolated they needed therapy and then ended up realizing oh oh shit i've got all this other stuff built up and and you know some of it is social some of it is personal some of it is just the way that you know i internalized the world and how it's a supposed to function and process and we're we're starting to really realize oh oh holy shit i'm allowed to have emotions i'm allowed to be sad or angry or happy and i'm allowed to pursue my own identity and what makes me happy as a person and i think yeah a lot of that is reflected in the art because there's that sharp uptick in characters actually thinking through what their past actions wrought and how they're approaching things mm -hmm. oh that's so well 
well put, Raven. That's so well put. I mean, you're right though. Like the I think a lot about when when it when we think about like mutant art, how much the mutant metaphor kind of falls onto the AIDS crisis with things like the legacy virus and you know how we lost a whole generation of queer artists in the 80s and 90s. There was this one arc of Daredevil that I think was written by Anne Nascenti where this guy Bushwhacker was going around murdering mutant artists and it was like this like a parallel to that that wiping away of the the, the art that we lost, you know? I I think that that's another joy of the Krakoan era is that not only do we get to see these artists but those artists who we lost have started to come back. Like they've been referenced in other books and so these these mutants who had like their names mentioned once and their abilities mentioned in the context of their murder are now on screen performing and it's like this is the joy this is mutant joy this is the mutant joy that i've been waiting to see after the years of trauma and oppression and fear and loss it also obviously to me just uh, like keeps reinforcing that you know mutants are a metaphor for a lot of things but i know uh for a lot of us mutants are a metaphor for queer queer people um you know and and that's not exclusively like mutants can be metaphors for many different things but for me it always rings as a metaphor for queer people um you know you you know go into puberty and then you get your action gets activated that's when a lot of us start realizing our same-sex attractions or the differences in our gender identity um you know and then from there you know we have to grow up with you know being different than we thought we were well being born different than who we thought we would have been you know and then we have to deal with that um you know and the idea of Krakoa and and the art like you're talking about is making it their own culture making you know creating out of this pain and not always easiest existence is beautiful so like how do we feel about Orcus after this pretty <laughs> takedown from them they didn't get their ass beat just once by a child they got their ass beat twice that must have been a really bad day for that skeleton oh, crew right <laughs> I felt pretty good about it. You're like, we're just shutting it down. I felt pretty great about it. Like after seeing Orcus get win after win after win lately and just like Mm -hmm. helping, you know, start up this whole judgment day war thing, judgment war, judgment day thing. It was just nice to see Orcus taken out like punks again for the first time in a long time. It really was. I want want somebody to come in and be like, ha ha, Orcus, you're punks. You're so much punks. You're like CM Punk. Ha ha. It's an easy story to like send people in and beat up the bad guys with you know it's they're unambiguously the enemy of mutant kind so it's not like we feel super bad we know that characters like akihiro and james are controlled enough to not go in and murder everyone in the building i mean it's it's just it's a good fight but it's also less about the fight and more about the fact that they can have this fight while also having this like extremely you know in-depth meaningful conversation and speaking of this fight i do want to say like not only was the dialogue great and the conversation and the working out their problems but this fight was really good like the writing of it the layout of it the art the sound effects my favorite part of this issue is definitely Akihiro jumps at James and says proud star catch and then Claudio this is the ideal mutant circuit is when you like Claudio Castagnoli and you just taking it like John Moxley. I was going to say swing your partner, yeah. Dosi Doe. 
<laughs> I like I like that because I don't understand wrestling references. So I, want, I want to say that this is the weed whacker right here. This is their finishing move. There as a tag is the weed whacker. Okay, okay. This is the weed whacker. This is this is the proud star proud star doc. Yeah, weed and then immediately movie. after that, their whole like shut up slice punch like phenomenal between the writing, the art, the layout, and the lettering on that just unbelievable. How much of a shit day must it be for that orcus skeleton crew that a they're just getting blown through like that but like b they have to listen to the therapy session while they're getting their asses handed <laughs> oh, to them no. how funny would it have been if so- if any of them had just like chimed in like, hey, you know he's right punch smash shut up <laughs> yeah maybe your sister's right to hate you oh <laughs> But like I would, I wouldn't. I mean, that would be a blow to my ego. Like if I'm fighting, you know, some superheroes and they they can't even, you know, I'm not even worth them focusing their conversation on me. They're still like yeah. having this deep therapy session, and like, bam, you just taking out in two seconds. That is that is a worse blow than probably getting punched in the face by a superhero. How did y'all feel about one? Obviously, now in Marauders, a hero goes by Fang. Um, you know, and and I loved his reasoning for going by it. So it was like cool i love it he needed a new, needed a new name yeah. almost nobody knows how to correctly pronounce that name at least american readers i hear it mispronounced in various ways all the time it doesn't matter whether or not the word was used as a slur in japan like but the name just needed to go and fang is so much better it's great so this issue has to take place sometime after the shadow king arc and after the uh resurrection of john proudstar but it doesn't have to take place anywhere past that point right so this could this could be like a flashback to a few weeks ago kind of story. So Aki could still be in space, uh, like now or where, wherever. I, mean, I think they're actually back now. They're back on. Yeah. They're back on. Uh, Judgment Day has been so weird be- seeing Bishop this whole time and like other people. And I'm like, well, wow, Kate, Kate's here. Everybody's here. I'm still reading Marauders. What's happening? Like it is a nice change and step away from the rest of the issues this week, which were really heavy on like we're going to judge you. Like <laughs> I mean, that's what it's all about. But like you know, like two much of that is too much sometimes but I, I also do hope that we do see the new mutants go through the ramifications of judgment because i could see the new mutants be a whole great therapy session have birdie come in and just like help everybody out somnus birdie therapy team supreme somnus birdie james I was really struck by the letter that Gabby wrote Akihiro at the end of the issue. I know personally I have to remember that Gabby is what, 8, 12? I don't know how old Gabby is. She's very She's great school. Yeah, she's, she's great. Kind of she's like 13. Like 13. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, she's, she's got mutant powers. Yeah. So but she's 12, but she's 13. still very much like a child. I don't know. She's always been smart for her age, I thought, and she's had to be around a lot of like crazy situations. I, I really like this letter. I thought it was fun. In some way, I think they both are a little wrong in their view, but like, you know, this is a very honest reaction from Gabby, and I do love that, you know, she's like, hey, you're, you're different. Like, let, let's not make it different. There's something weird about this. I'm like, mm, yeah, she still needs more therapy. That's why I'm conflicted on it a little, because I get her, I get her desire. Like, mm-hmm. I get her want for everything to go back 
back to the way it was before but like realistically once you go through that you know things will maybe go back more towards where they were before things will never be the same again but that's but that's the great thing though that is a very teenage reaction mm-hmm. to have yeah. yeah and it's like can't we just go back to the way it was and it's like no un- unfortunately in life you can't just go back to the way it was you can adjust you can you can recognize that there is some change that needs to be had and you can build new trust and you know form better relationships but just going back to the way it was would just mean you're gonna continue to repeat the same cycle and and like but i get it i totally get it because she is very much a teenager and this is this is a very teenage thought process and i was like oh i identify with this and it's also wrong but i know that she will grow beyond this but i understand where she's coming from yeah i mean i i think that what she's asking for i think the words that she's using are a little off like i i think this like can't we go back it makes sense as a request coming from like her experience and her framework but what i think she's asking for is can you like figure out what what is making you behave so weird with me she's like stop being with me stop treating me Um, an extra baby you know like just treat me like you treated me like a few months ago and that's all i miss i i really related hard to that i like i get that i get that as as a person who was a child i get that as a person who was an older brother Mm -hmm. yeah i and and as as an older sibling too like i i get the compulsion to be overprotective to the point where like you you know you you kind of lose the friendship in the sibling relationship were we all the oldest sibling here because i know me and nathan were i have two younger siblings and an older sibling but uh the way the dynamics shook out i was often playing the older oldest sibling role for a while yeah that's nice you got a little bit of a different perspective than us like we were definitely in the older older sibling scenario for this a lot of those feelings that you're probably going to have since you if you feel like you're the older sibling and you had to take care of the younger ones in that way and you had to be responsible for them in a way that maybe you shouldn't have had to be as a kid but it's just the way it happened <laughs> there's this weird responsibility that you're always going to carry with you and like i can see why akiro is reacting the way he is but i can also see why gabby wanted to stop and like it, it's never going to be the same it shows that they have some really great room for growth because because it's okay, it's okay for him to fail because she can take care of herself. That's kind of the lesson here that I that I walked away with. Is that like it's okay to be concerned. It's also okay to like have failed in watching her. She's a capable person, and that's the thing to like really key into and be proud of. Like you can also want to protect her, but being a good sibling means giving her room to grow. Also, just incidentally, I want this letterhead, and I want to write all my letters on it. I really appreciated the change in in pace and tone. Um, it really helped to. Give give our characters a little bit of I guess fresh life and permission to be something other than you know just okay we're gonna go keep doing the same thing we're always doing so like I enjoyed it because there was growth here I would love to see Danny writing more new memes I would love to see this this artist and writer team again because mm-hmm. I think they really complement each other very well um, and, and colorist too oh my goodness mm-hmm. like so yeah I just I want to see more of this whole creative team either together or like just doing more yeah. work in general at Marvel. I really like Dan Brown's colors a lot actually I've been noticing a lot of them anyway really good i gotta i gotta say the art amazing i I love this art the whole art team like really brought their a game like yes it is very totally different than what we've gotten before but i I really think it fit story i think it fit characters everybody had really great the coloring beautiful skin tones amazing and danny lore i I just want them to be able to write more at marvel like i would love them to have an echo i really haven't been as excited about a villain issue since vita's villain issue on marauders during tennis so 
you know, when they wrote that storm issue, I was like, oh my God, they really need to get a book and bam, boom, we got New Mutants. <laughs> this quality of this writing on this issue was every bit as good as that. I really want Danny Lore to have their chance to shine on an X book. I love the idea of bringing more non-white, non-male and queer voices into the X line. And I think so important that we do that because I think, you know, to get perspectives out of side of your normal point of view, it just grow for us. So like, we need that. Marvel needs that. Make this happen. Marvel, give Danny Lore, give them a book. They need it. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvel's Chronos Gaming Classics and Beasts of the Hand and Hands of the Beast. There's some fists. I don't even know anymore. But I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNate, X-Gray-X. And I am more shocked than anything that we are somehow here talking about the book we are talking about and... Punisher has been such a fascinating experience for me to go over with you, TK. We're here to talk about Jason Aaron, Jesus Seis, and Paul Azaceda's The King of Killers, Book 1, Chapter 6. That's the sixth issue of the current Punisher run, though for those of you keeping track at home, it's kind of the seventh issue because there was the one shot. Additionally, there's colors by Dave Stewart, letters by VC's Corey Pettit, and an incredible cover by Jesus Seis. And fuck, man, this book is getting wacky. We were going to originally stick this with a another bit of coverage but it was just there's too much book yeah the other bit of coverage was ghost rider the two of these books came out around the same time you and i decided to cover them around the same time and there have been some really interesting parallels both in terms of like the creative forces behind them and the kind of vision that we associate with them in this case jason aaron in the case of ghost rider ben percy they have really left a big mark at marvel and to see them on these books that i think we don't necessarily think of as so high profile has been a really rewarding way to get a sense of how deep and intimate their style of writing can go versus how we see them writing really much bigger blockbustery type things. The interesting parallels have sort of continued all the way through, including the coverage that we were talking about for both issues. It just ended up being that for Punisher, there was so much more to say, but it really is in both cases a matter of a, I don't want to say popular guest star in the case of Aries, because he's not particularly popular, but a guest star to the book really coming in in this moment to say, it's time to reflect on who you are, Punisher in this case, or in the case of Ghost Rider, Johnny Blaze, and it's Wolverine saying it to him. So, you know, just a very interesting time in both books, and fascinating that they have had kind of the same timing throughout. If for no other reason, the narrative that they have the Punisher on has been something that I really think deserves as much discussion as the book itself. That's not to say that each issue isn't packed with a valuable amount of content, but so often the discussions that we should have as a result of the Punisher's current trajectory and the trajectory that Marvel put him on by virtue of a world and time by which patriotism was... Okay, I'm going to go back a minute. Journey back with me to college. And I had a professor who taught like a structured argument, sort of how to properly write an argument class. I don't even remember the name 
name of the course anymore. But part of it was understanding, you know, the value of rhetoric and effective strategies in writing. And he showed us the Ronald Reagan re-election video and asked us to raise our hand if it made us feel patriotic and then asked others, you know, said, put your hands down and then said, okay, if it made you feel uncomfortable and somewhat embarrassed of America, raise your hand. Now, when he said patriotic, one guy raised his hand. I'd also note that that guy was a police officer going back to school to become a lawyer who carried his gun with him to class. Uh, Everyone else who raised their hand said that it was like, it made them uncomfortable. It felt weird. It felt like it was trying to talk about an America that had no room for anybody that was not white middle class and from the Midwest. And there's truly nothing wrong with being a white middle class person from the Midwest. That's completely fine. That's part of the identity that creates America. But to say that that is all America could be was complicated. And that video, whether that aligned with Ronald Reagan's overall politicism or not, created one vision that was incapable of surviving outside of its cultural zeitgeist. When The Punisher was created in Amazing Spider-Man 129, we were living in a world where defund the police was something scary people said, not people with an understanding of how to repair American justice. It was a very different time. And for me, The Punisher, until this, was kind of the Ronald Reagan re-election video trying to survive in an America that literally didn't understand it anymore. And it's worth noting that one of the most recent big convictions from the January 6th incident, the dude that was convicted in all of the press photos that you see of him, he's wearing a Punisher logo t-shirt. So this is a problem that has persisted, that has dogged Marvel. I saw another story about a police brutality incident recently in which there's video of the policeman in question on his phone and he's got the Punisher logo as his phone wallpaper. This is something that many comics fans have a really big problem with and I think the expectation for a lot of people was that they they would go scorched earth on this character. I think that's just not really realistic in the world that we live in. We could have a longer conversation about changing the world but that's not today. Today this is a company that owns a property that they want to be able to use. So it becomes a matter of how do we not rehab the character because this isn't about rehabbing Frank but how do we rehab this line? How do we rehab the idea of the Punisher so that we can continue to tell stories using this character? And what it really is about is completely removing the question of whether Frank is right or wrong in his quest and moving into he's wrong and let's see how wrong we can go. Let's see how off the path of even justifiable justice we can get to. And I think that starts pretty much from page one. One of the things that I see in the redesign of this book that kind of surprises me is Marvel isn't all about putting quotes on the cover of books these days. Like it feels unless it's, you know, putting a byline from an amazing reviewer, like just gotta keep saying it, but it's so amazing that Blake of Blake's Buzz, who, you know, longtime close friend, amazing voice out in the ether, has been doing his thing forever and his quotes are making it onto the cover of trades and shit. I love that. I kind of wonder about the efficacy of these pull quotes going on the cover of the book. There's been a pull quote on the cover of every issue since issue three, and I'm not sure that they create an effectiveness, but there is an element that really strikes me here. The pull quote on the cover 
from Ares is show me your war face, Frank. Show me what all those years of my generous blessings have made you. The god of war essentially says, I created this monster of violence in you. And then before the word Punisher appears on the titling page, we see the phrase, after retired Marine Frank Castle's wife and children were killed by stray gunfire during a shootout in Central Park, he began a one-man vigilante war on crime. Armed with a vast arsenal and grim determination, he became the Punisher. There's so much I need to interact with here. They clarify he is a retired Marine. At the time this all begins, he is not an active man serving, representing his government. That is the first thing we need to get in check. He is not acting as an agent of the law when he does any of this. So when police officers worship him, it'd kind of be like if like there was a character out there that was a gay dude who went and murdered gay bashers, including people of the law, because there is an unfortunate precedence for this. You find yourself, how can you justify that? You're supposed to be protected. You're supposed to be saving people. From there, they make it clear that it's stray gunfire, not assassinating them. And be- the determination at that point becomes he became a one-man vigilante operating outside the law. Vigilante means outside the law, armed with an arsenal and grim determination. They're working so hard to de-policify Punisher before you even get in the book. And yet this, it is a an apt description for an, an elevator pitch for the Punisher. It still works to describe what you need to know broadly about the character at any given time. And I think the the fact that they talk about him being a one-man war on crime, you know, we, we especially need that now because we are dealing with the god of war, but it is in those little details of the wording that do show you not just that Marvel is committed to making clear that this is not the same as being a soldier in the U.S. military or a police officer. It is a completely different thing, but also that there is a context within the comics that Frank is a part of that is important to the stories in Punisher that can never be a part of any real world discourse about being a vigilante or deciding that you want to fight crime, that you want to you want to be part of the war on crime. Because by becoming part of a war, you are engaging in the war. And that's part of the discussion. When we try to, you know, because I'm not here to tell anybody their political beliefs or to, I mean, yeah, I am kind of here to say there are certain political beliefs that are absolutely destructive and counterintuitive to the success of the human race. And we need to get on board with the fact there's 7 billion of us and there's not just one fucking person. But I'm not here to judge people's specific political beliefs in this conversation. The thing I'm here to discuss and to actively take a look at is the reality of if Frank behaves as a criminal, shooting people with contraband weapons, how is he not the criminal? And in that regard, when a police officer then puts Frank up on a pedestal, aren't they in many ways vaguely worshipping the very violence and criminal behavior they seek to erase? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that is the question that we can ask as people that are, as, as other readers of this series and as fans that are interested in what Marvel will do with this character, I think that's a really fair question to ask. But I also really give Marvel credit for kind of, again, going beyond that from the start of this series. Like, we're no longer in a, oh, you know, he's, ironically, like, the thing that always makes us talk about it is his conversations with Daredevil, where Daredevil does not kill, and they have this sort of back and forth of Frank really feeling like he's more in the right because he stops these people once and for all. But again, we're, we have now gone 
gone beyond having that back and forth in the pages of the book. Frank is now on a completely different path. There is mysticism involved. It's very cool. There's great storytelling here. But as part and parcel of that, he's he's basically just in the wrong. He is part of a death cult. We understand emotionally why he made this choice. And there is a degree to which we would all be like, I get it. You know, if my, my spouse and partner who I love more than anything, if I lost them, I would probably do some crazy shit to get them back in a fantasy world like this. But no longer are we dealing with the question of, is Frank stopping crime? We've now really gone into something else. And for one thing, I think that really, I hope that turns people off who come from that, you know, law enforcement, I want to be the Punisher background now that we've really gone into demons and mysticism. Hopefully that'll push them away from the book. But for Marvel people, I do hope that that shows that, you know, when these concepts come up, when these characters are created decades ago, it's a very different thing. And we do have to live with them for a while after that. It's the very few characters that are ever going to be retired for good. And so the best thing we can do is really tell stories that take us beyond simplistic narratives. And in cases where it's just wrong, we we move past that entirely. It's part of the situation that I think really requires a look at the history of Punisher. And that's one of the reasons that I really love that you brought up Daredevil. I think back to the earliest appearances of Punisher with Daredevil. And I think about how one of Punisher's big things was always keep your stupid magic shit in your pocket. And like was just all Greg Sestero about not wanting your stupid comments. And the fact that we have reached an age of Punisher where what we're really discussing is the hyper-realism that Punisher was grounded in. The very things that make Garth Ennis's very Scottish dick so hard are the things that we've actively had to work to move out of the character. And I think it has to do with the reality and nature of how we can blend the hyper-fantastical with the real. One of the things that comes up a lot in the discussion of law enforcement in Marvel Comics is there's a very unreasonable duality that we never seem to be able to really lock into one side or another. When we discuss Legion of X, we have to be very careful in how we recognize that these are not real police officers, but rather they are hyper-magical police officers in a hyper-magical world doing hyper-magical things. Conversely, in the pages of Kieran Gillen's Judgment Day, Captain America was judged for not doing enough for a failing America. So this balance that we constantly need to strike of willful politicism in an age where that politicism itself is a minefield becomes so challenging that if they had not removed Punisher from that dangerous, precarious, frankly tipped over and had already gone so far beyond the point of doing damage to our society. It's it's a really hard topic, I think. And the fact that Marvel said we can no longer have this conversation when we are unwilling to have the full conversation was one of the most important things they ever did to keep Punisher in print. And you, dear listener, if you still are unconvinced, that is completely fair. And we do get to a point where it becomes a broader question of like, in capitalism, if you have a a property like this, you are going to use it. And yeah, we can then move into a discussion of like, well, we should destroy capitalism. So when a character that is really problematic comes up, it's completely reasonable to just get rid of them forever and never think of them again. That's, that is true. If that is, 
Is that if that's how you feel about it? That's not an unreasonable argument. We today are probably not going to end capitalism as we know it. And, you know, neither is Jason Aaron, neither is Marvel Comics. So given the fact that we are operating in the system, we're working with what we got. And I really do give everybody involved credit for doing really solid work. You know, I don't know anybody's beliefs, but I do imagine that there are many people that work on this book, that read this book. You know, I am a person that believes that we can do better than the economic system we're living under right now. And yet I am still fascinated by this book. And while I wish that I could appeal to the company or could have appealed to the company years ago to retire this character and take the power out of its logo, that's just not something that's realistic. And so now I feel it's sort of a privilege to get to analyze this from a place of, you know, safety and not being persecuted by police and being able to look at what people have done to change the conversation in a world where it's a given that the conversation is going to continue with this particular character. And the conversation really involves even that very logo that you said you wanted to see destroyed. I cannot say for certain that the people for whom, because like, it's hard for me to go to my gym, which is, you know, it's a kind of a bro gym, I guess. It's not like the broest gym, but I definitely don't go to like mom and dad family fitness, right? So there's a lot of grunting. There's a lot of big dudes, you know, a lot of law enforcement. The police station is just like six buildings down. So yeah, my gym's parking lot is filled with Punisher logos over the back tire on like the spare tire in the back of the car on like the Jeeps and the SUVs and the trucks and shit. And as someone who actively has read Punisher most of his comic reading life, I do wonder how many people that flash that iconography really understand what it, it represents because what it frequently represents is like being willing to put the gun in the mouth of a kid you think might grow up to be a gangbanger. Like, we're pistol whipping children. And no matter your job, no matter your position in life, that is not something to promote publicly. It's, you know, the other day I was driving home from visiting a, a good buddy and uh, someone I love very much. And when I was driving home, I passed a truck that said, honk if you are against child abuse as a bumper sticker. And I turned to Kevo, my husband, who was the passenger with me. And I said, Kevo, do we really need to like take a stance against child abuse? Shouldn't it then just be every, hon- every car every car should just always be honking? There should never be a moment where we're not honking then. And Kevo was like, you'd think, but sometimes these things are confusing. And I guess it's really that there are things that we allow for that allow for abuses that we still need to make those states because, yeah, there are tons of forms of abuse that we don't always think about. It's not just beating someone that is abuse. If you destroy their livelihood, if you take a child's parents away without perfect proof that they had been wrong, are you telling me that the Punisher has never in his entire career had stray gunfire? You're saying no one's ever gotten injured because the Punisher shot off fucking round after round. We wind up in a position where we cannot support the behaviors or actions of Punisher and putting him in these new situations under the pen of Jason Aaron deforming reality to be about the demon that lies within us all. You know, Frank's been living in hell this whole time, so this really is not a new place for Frank. He's just meeting the owner of the establishment finally. And I think this is such a significant point because even if this isn't like the greatest book 
book in the world. And even if this isn't the future of Punisher, this is the end of the previous Punisher existing without Marvel checking his ass over and over again. I think that is exactly correct. This, whatever happens, this book is serving as the line that says everything that came before. Because, you know, back to your original point. Yeah, if you kind of think of yourself as the Punisher or if you like support the logo because it speaks to your like, I'm going to stop crime. You have completely missed the original point of Punisher as the character was envisioned when created and in those early conversations with Daredevil. Like, there is no question that the point is that this guy is wrong. Regardless of the other stuff that having him present brings up for other characters and regardless of the fact that the crimes that he wants to stop are also bad, he is wrong. You don't just get to wantonly kill people because it could, quote, stop crime. From there, decades of writing, a lot of people get their hands on the Punisher do kind of decide to lean more towards, nah, he's actually right. Or, you know, let's play around with making him a hero. You know, there's lots of different ways that the Punisher has been written. And between misunderstandings of the original conception of the character and him being written a lot of different ways, that has helped to blur that line and to make it more appealing to people to just identify the logo with stopping crime. We really reached a critical point at which we had to no longer just turn a blind eye to the problematic people that enjoy Punisher and really just completely rethink this character and this property. And this is the line at which we say from here on out, I think it's going to be significantly thought out anytime that the Punisher is used and people are not going to be able to just kind of wantonly use this character and maybe be cavalier about the murders for for reasons of quote justice. I think doing it with a, a really odd, weird, magical story is a great way to just right off the bat, like I said before, hopefully turn people off who think it is a very simple matter of this guy stops crime. And also, you know, to start getting us into the psychology of somebody who is so broken, because doing that is not a way of justifying what a character does, but it is a way of pointing out that everybody has a history and a background. And even, you know, I think we love villain origin stories too. It's worth exploring these things, not to make somebody more sympathetic, but to make them a fully realized character. And I think between the mysticism and the deep dive on Frank's like problematic history, that's kind of the lie of that intro blurb is this did not start with the shooting of his family. We see in this book clearly that it started much earlier for Frank, that Frank had problems to begin with. And all of these things together, I think, have created a fresh point for us to start with any future Punisher work that happens. Because once we get into the book itself, Frank is now making decisions from which Marvel really can't come back. And I am aware that retcons are a necessary, valuable element of storytelling. And anyone who doesn't recognize that the value of a retcon allows not just changing of canon, but instead the altering of canon to be more appropriate. I think about J.H. Williams III and how his process, so that's the guy who drew Promethea and Sandman Overture. So we're talking about one of the greatest artists to work in his medium in his time. He did not believe in mistakes. So if he did something wrong, he fixed it by drawing it in. He did not erase things. He would change the line by thickening it, but he would never erase. And when we talk about that, we say how that is the most unbelievable thing we can imagine. Okay, but now make that 60 years long and make it a million words. Do you really think there's value to never retconning anything? Because I don't. And this is a point at which, you know, I think about the time that the Punisher became an angel under the pen of Christopher Golden. Not the best. Um, didn't really make sense because it missed the point. He became an angel. 
He was now a good person. It was further proving his goodness. And the whole thing we're saying is there is no goodness. And I don't believe you can walk back the sort of action and the moments in this book, specifically the end that we're going to get to shortly. But if the Punisher has always made war and Ares says, you were like my greatest disciple. I gave you so much and you gave me so much war and now you're beginning to disgust me. We're not only being told the Punisher is different now. We're literally being told he existed to create war. Now, I want to interact with that. If he were a police officer, his job would exist to stop crime, intervene when there is crime, to some extent, prevent crime. His job is not to sustain crime such that he always has a job. The Punisher, it is now made clear to us, was always an agent of war. I mean, this is things that like anybody who's read the character since 1980 should have fucking known. <laughs> but like, they're putting it in text, which is really helpful here. Yeah. If the Punisher has always served to create war. Was he ever truly a hero. A literal god is coming and saying, you were my avatar on this planet. You did the best at creating violence, which is what sustains me. And you are insulting me because you have now gone a step further and stopped even caring about the the violence aspect, the war aspect, and have now just gone right to death. You no longer are, you know, a, a war is planned, there's strategy involved, and, and continue to fuck Frank. He's still the worst. But that he had a plan in his own head that involved taking out the people that he believed were responsible for crime. It was not okay that he did it, but he at least was, you know, it was systemic violence that he thought would make the world safer, I guess, in his delusional mind. But now he is just serving a cult that, or he's heading a cult that doesn't care about strategy for their end goal of just as much death as possible. They do strategy to, you know, stay alive and figure out how to do more death, but they don't care if it's innocence. They don't care if it's bad guys. They just want as much death as possible. Frank has now insulted a violence god by being worse. And how can you possibly be worse than Ares? Like, he is literally Ares. When you say, oh, this guy's a bad guy. Oh, I based him on the god of war. You know, Ares? Like, you're not saying, oh, I based it on this guy, Dave. Dave was really mean to me in high school. One time, he threw out my notebook. No, it's this guy is literally in some cultures the source of all war period and it really is through these dynamic reflective values that we're able to get a sense of some of the darkness that's eating away at frank i think perhaps my favorite part of all of this is every fucking time aries is like you're being a chump please stop i want to go by the way they keep calling her a hand witch and yeah. i keep being like it makes me hungry stop it but you know he's just constantly like hey man you really need to stop because this is just embarrassing. Look, under this mask, I even kind of look like you. That was a weird moment. Really? For you? I kind of found it, oh, I guess, but, uh, okay. I think I found it romantic of Ares's passion for finding violence in others. I'm not sure Ares would look like that presented to someone else. That's kind of what I was wondering because, so the problem is there's a pause in the dialogue that is because Ares is realizing that the way that the hand has Frank is that they're helping to reanimate his family. But because of the pause and the reveal, it kind of seems like the reveal is supposed to be that he is Frank. That's significant. Like, that he is Frank, therefore, like, you know, maybe Frank literally is an incarnation of Ares or something like that. Who knows? As I reread it, I realized that it's probably not that, but I think it is actually exactly what you said, which I, it, when you said it, it crystallized in my head. 
yeah, I think that he is essentially presenting to Frank as Frank because this really is the best Frank is ever going to get is that the God of War really liked him. He's never going to be better than that. And you know what? The best some people are ever going to do is be someone else's favorite. Like, yeah. and that's always what's so funny to me about like the way the universe sometimes comes together around these characters. I don't know that anybody in the entire Marvel universe is like, yeah, the Punisher, he's the best. But I know that Steve has a soft spot for him, which has waned in years recent, which is certainly important to me continuing to love Steve as much as I do. And with Steve having a soft spot for Punisher, and like, I want to be clear, I don't believe that Matt has a soft spot for Punisher. I believe Matt would literally kill Punisher first if he could. Like, if Matt could just stop feeling guilty about murder, I think Punisher would go first. He'd be up there. I think he would have more trouble killing Fisk than killing Frank, for sure. And I don't know. This book is important to me because I feel like it's just so clear that Frank is the villain. There can be no third act save. There can be no turning it around. Also, Ares is the most attractive character, like, ever. And the fact that Ares wears the original Punisher shield on his chest during the fight as Frank is wearing the transformed Punisher logo. And every time Frank goes to use the superpowers, I just can't help but laugh. Because, like, Ares is a god. Like, Ares is the thing above the thing powering Frank. So this just feels like Goldar being like, I'm going to defeat Zordon. And like Alpha Flight just sitting there laughing. You know what I mean? Like Goldar, get in line. You go fight the Rangers. You know your place. It's Zed and Zordon with some Rita in between. I love all of it. But like, Frank, you're so fucking outclassed. And that's not a Frank mistake. Yeah, it's great that it is on both sides. The best that some people are ever going to do is to be somebody else's favorite. Really fucking slam dunk on the Punisher because I think Frank likes to think that he's nobody's favorite, but in this way where he doesn't need to be anybody's favorite because he's doing what he knows is right and he's the only one who will. And I think what would actually be more insulting to him is that he is the favorite of the god of wanton violence where the violence actually is not, has no purpose. And, you know, he's not God's favorite. You know what I mean? He's not, he's not actually making this things This isn't safe. a Noriega situation. Right. You know, he's not, he's not making things, he's not making things safer for anybody. So it's almost a bigger insult that he is the favorite of Ares, but now he is also the darling of the hand, which is fantastic for two reasons. He has so bought into the lie that he is the head of the hand, that he is the leader of the hand, when it is so clear that even if there weren't the other elements, which there are and we will get to, but they have him in their grasp because they control the resurrection of his family. Like right from the get-go, Frank, you're so dumb if you don't realize the leverage that these people have over you and how that imbalance is completely fucking up any mission that you have, including getting your family back. But from there, like, yeah, the delicious hand witch is also very clearly a crazy demon lady who's super duper powerful. The beast is the leader of the hand. And also, you know, something we talked about in previous coverage, but really insane that the beast is this kind of looming conception threat in this book, but just straight up hangs around the Wolverine book, shows up, you know, does a couple great one-liners, has a daughter in the mix. Very interesting duality happening there. But yeah, Frank is not the leader of the hand. He is the guy that the foot soldiers call leader so that the actual leaders can get him to do what they want, which is, again, just to kill more people. So you're kind of saying that he's sort of a deputy to the sorceress of the hand, which I guess if she's the hand witch that 
makes him the Earl of Handwich. You are so proud of yourself for that, aren't you? I just sat here the whole time you were talking, yeah. getting to the joke. Yeah. The key thing in this issue for me is this is the first time I feel that the flashback serves only to further the plot. In the other issues, I have very much felt as though the flashbacks were definitive of the experience of the book. The flashbacks helped me to not just understand Frank better as like a villain, not like, oh, I get him now, but like, oh, I understand this is the villain he is now instead of the vague hero villain where they were never clear in the past. The flashbacks here really, for the first time, felt like cinematic narrative moments designed to create emotional context and didn't really tell their own story. That's certainly not a knock against the book because that is a very prominent, popular storytelling method, especially at Marvel in the last few years, uh, coming to really accept and appreciate the dynamic length of time that these titles have existed. But I don't know. I felt very much this was perhaps one of the most underserved uses of the flashback technique. Definitely the first couple pages with Maria pregnant looking for Frank. It definitely does have that cinematic feel to it where a lot of the previous flashbacks, I think one of the big things they did was show that Frank's fascination with violence, again, not because his family was murdered and he decided that he would take on crime. He just was fascinated with violence from a young age. You know, he did a weird Punisher thing as a kid and liked how it felt. So let's not hide behind vigilante justice for my family. This is just, you were a weird fucking kid and, you know, you were a budding incel and nobody stopped you. These don't really do that same thing. You know, we kept seeing examples of him beating up bullies in high school, but, you know, kind of going too far with it. The flashbacks here don't do that same thing of showing Frank being the Punisher before he was the Punisher. But I do think they do a job of showing us that Frank is a human being. And I think that is important here, not because it humanizes Frank in a way where we can sympathize with him and think like, oh, you know, I'm human too. But it's more humans do the bad shit too. Frank is is human. Frank is could be your next door neighbor. And yeah, your next door neighbor could be a white supremacist police officer. Like it's it is human to also do really evil, horrible things. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we sympathize with the person such that their actions are justifiable. But it does mean that we understand that we come from a common core of humanity and there is greatness in that humanity and there is terribleness in that humanity. And and Frank is pretty terrible. Speaking of terrible, the real shock of this issue for me was my reaction to Frank's children. Now, it is so smart that they are too grotesque to be seen and they are horrifying. I need to dial into the art in this book, which is it hurts because it's such an ugly book. And I mean, it's ugly like the filth was ugly. I mean, it's ugly like the confrontational self-hate on Janet Jackson's velvet rope is ugly. I mean, it hurts to look at. It's beautiful, though. And the elements of design, the glow of the liquid in the chamber that is hopefully bringing Frank's children back to life, the gilded gold of the tools being used in this ancient magical ritual to resurrect his children, and the fact that they are horrifying, extra fingers malformed, and it's not just that it's like the two of them together because you can see there's two bodies. Maybe it is the two of them together. They can't separate the DNA. I don't know. This is some body horror above Mark. Marvel's normal staples of body horror in a book like Punisher, though I do know that some of Al Ewing's breathtaking work in the last few years, as well as the challenging work of writers like Alex Pacnadel, have certainly advanced discussions of body horror.
horror at Marvel. But once Frank decides to kill his children because they cannot be resurrected properly, and I mean the hand witch's face is like I don't I don't I don't I don't know how to deal with this book sometimes because I truly think that the hand witch might think of Frank as her child. Like I think she I don't know I don't know the look on her face in on page twenty five of thirty in the digital edition when she says it's always difficult with children, especially ones who've been dead longer than they were alive, and the look on Frank's face. This is like this is why I am such a Jason Aaron fan and why this art team could fucking sell me an, a, a cartoon version of the fucking phone book and I'd buy it. There is so much hate and humanity and reality in every page of this and then it kind of seems like if Frank is letting his children not come back, then what is he doing this for? Yeah, back to the hand witch thinking of him as her child. We There has been some question among readers if the memories that Frank has or the flashbacks that we see of her visiting Frank as a child and doing the sort of the test to see if he's a reincarnation of whatever this avatar of the hand is. If those memories are somehow implanted and it's just another way that they're getting control of Frank. But assuming they're real, then she has been with him since he was a child. There is a very maternal aspect to the way she approaches him to the fact that, again, he's not really in control. Kind of she is. She talks as though she is his deputy, but we do see these moments where she really is the one pulling the strings. And I think it's really an expert depiction of somebody who probably as much as they can really does look maternally on Frank, but is so consumed with her horrible purpose of serving death that there is a point to which that no longer matters. She does not love or sympathize with Frank in any such way that should she see him suffering because of the loss of his children, the loss of his wife, the desire to bring them back, anything like that. She's not going to stop this all and say, oh, let's let's take care of you. She is going to use that to serve death. And if that makes Frank the best servant of death, then she's really going to love him even more. But anything maternal that she has is specifically tied to can he be the best servant of death? And a moment like this where she is really sympathetic, I think, is when she sees him as being the thing that she wants him most to be. And yet again, that's not a good guy. That's not anybody we're rooting for. So even though we have this moment that is heartbreaking, a father wanting his children back and in some capacity having them back, but it's wrong and he's going to kill them, there's really still no sympathy to be had for Frank. We can understand how we all might feel the same, longing for our children if they died, but what Frank is doing here, including killing the children because they have come back wrong. That really is one of those blurred line things where how right do they have to be? You know, if this is another failed attempt and it is worse because they get worse as you keep trying, how bad were they the first time? Why was that not enough for you? What would ever be enough? I think the fact that we get this moment is further illustration that this is just all completely rotten. There is no solid end game here where Frank can ever be happy. But you know, he's in good company because when I think of people who cannot ever be happy mm-hmm. my sweet buddy Matt Murdock comes to mind and you know Matt crashing down on that last page of this issue is such a significant turning point for the series this has been a moment we've been waiting for forever and it kind of feels like we might need to address what's going on over in the pages of Daredevil at some point if for no other reason we're finally starting to see Akka who had appeared in Daredevil the woman without fear and 
And that had been a major point for this book launching. So I know that a thing that we don't talk about a lot as Daredevil fans, because we're Daredevil fans, is we don't talk a lot about the Andy Diggle Shadowland era, mm-hmm. in which the hand was literally putting the beast in Daredevil, and every kill Daredevil did fed the beast of the hand and corrupted him into a demon where he took on mystical abilities and a new darker costume. I can't help but then think about the fact that now we have what is possibly one of the most annoying confluences, and I understand why it's literary and it's pretty, but if Daredevil is the beast of the fist and Punisher is the beast, is the fist of the beast, I just feel like that makes Electra like the bistro du jour. I just, it gets so hard to say these words, and this is such an important fight for us. You know, we probably will need to cover Daredevil 1 through 3 and maybe Daredevil 1 through 4, depending on the release schedule, how this all shakes out, but this really is putting the two most central figures in this debate side by side and say, measure them up. One is fighting angels now, this one is working for the devil, yet they're both completely at odds. How is that possible? Matt has really has no endgame. He can't ever stop fighting. And not in that heroic way of he will never stop fighting for justice, but that this is all that he has. He doesn't want to give up the fight. And he has lines that he won't cross, and those are incredibly important. And I think he does really try to do good, but he and Frank have in common that they can't stop. Frank's inability to stop is far, far worse. But when put in contest with Daredevil, it really does constantly make Matt have to question how far away he is from the edge that the Punisher just threw himself over. And I think it's more than just an interesting place for this book or the Daredevil book to be in. I think this is, for this corner of the Marvel Universe, a really big turning point. And I have to give everybody a ton of credit for, even though Matt gets the appearance in Judgment Judgment Day, he's not really a big part of it. He's got his own stuff going on. And I give everybody credit for making a big move like this while a story like Judgment Day is happening and making a reader like me who is kind of new to all of this stuff and not really new to everything that's happening in Judgment Day, very familiar with all the characters and very eager to see what happens. But I'm really just as excited about the hand versus the fist, Matt and Electra, Matt talking to Punisher. There is some really great stuff here and I am so excited to see not just what's going to happen next, but broadly what the future for these characters is because it really does seem like a lot of what's being said is we can't go backwards now. We know that comics change and somewhere way down the line somebody might say it's time to go back to our roots, it's time to take it back to the 2000s when everything was cool and the way I liked it. But for now, it really does seem like there is a big mission statement to take a big leap forward and I am so excited to see for these characters where it lands them. You know, and it's of note that while he was never properly a member of the Midnight Suns, the original 1993-ish team, which featured Ghost Riders and Morbius and uh, Strange and Blade, he is the kind of character that you would maybe just kind of slot in with that group at times. I know we said that he's particularly not mystical, but he is that very, I can't believe I keep getting thrown in with all these mystics kind of guy. And we saw him play similar roles in the Marvel Knights era, uh, where Joe Quesada had uh, access to a corner of the Marvel Universe unto himself before he was editor-in-chief, and that he's not being put in Midnight Suns, that he's not on the new Thunderbolts, that he's not running around in a bunch of titles where he wouldn't make sense anymore. It really is a sign that Marvel is committed to this. Personally, I don't know if I think this issue by itself is an A 
but I kind of feel like I can't extract it from the era it's in that Frank is so overcome with rage and murder that he literally drowns in it and then is brought back in a way that his wife and child cannot be brought back properly and seems to adjust his mission in the face of one of his oldest friend foes. I give this whole thing an A. As an experiment, as a project, seven issues of this, six by one team, I am a fan of this run of Punisher because I hate Punisher more than ever. And this run is making it possible to hate him intentionally, feeling as though you have the support of the creative team and that those two identities are not at odds. I couldn't agree more. If the one strike about this whole thing is that, yeah, I think most of these issues can't really be judged individually. Yet, you know, on the flip side, the the serial schedule, the monthly release, I'm not desperately wishing I was reading this in trade. Somehow it is all working. The issues themselves might not stand up on their own without the context of the series as a whole, but I'm, I am looking forward to it each month, and about one issue is all I can handle in a month, so they really are striking the balance there, but yeah, the run uh, as a whole is really what does need to be judged here, and I really do think it is a success at turning the page on, is there a debate about the Punisher? Nope, there is not. There's no debate. Bad dude. What can we now do with a bad dude? I really give Aaron credit, because I think we do want to read villain stories too. A, A protagonist is not a hero. Frank is the protagonist of this story, but he's definitely not a hero, and he's not an anti-hero. He is a bad guy. He's not a comic book super villain, but he is somebody that we can understand. We should not want to emulate. We should not hero worship. We should not say, oh, one day I want to be like Frank Castle. And I I can feel that way and still want to read a story about him. I think Aaron has written the definitive story about a bad guy that I still want to read really badly. As always, we love making this show for you three times a week, every week, with MC2, kind of Spider-Girl, Magic Fusion Mondays. We got all your favorite books recently released Wednesdays and Fridays. You can check out everything about the show at accessforpodcast.com and accessforpodcast on Twitter. As for me, you can find me at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram, as well as my original work at kidriotcomics.com and in the recently released Young Men in Love anthology. Love being part of that thing. Can't stop mentioning it. It's such an amazing book, and I hope everybody gets a chance to check it out. And until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoa gateways open. Remember, the judgment is always just around the corner. It's one of those events that seems like it's never going to stop. And we'll see you.